MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. The year is 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill, and I would like to welcome our new co-host, Peter Strzok. Hi, Pete. Hey, Allison. How are you? I'm really good. It's nice to see you. Welcome. We are very glad to have you here with us. This is going to be really interesting and fun. I know we're going to be talking a lot about some of the other cases and, and criminal cases that are going through other uh, agencies besides the Jack Smith uh, DOJ and, and all that. And then, of course, this weaponization committee from Jim Jordan. I know you and I were texting back and forth as that was happening. Um, and I, I remember you were like, yeah, this is uh, the most ridiculous thing I've seen in a really long time. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, and, I, and, you know, I look forward to I look forward to all of it. We're going to break down all this stuff for everybody um, and all of our all of our awesome patrons. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm super, super happy to uh, join you with this. There's a lot going on. There's a lot coming up, I think, between what we're seeing with all these different prosecutions, all the nonsense going on in Congress. It's always difficult because anybody in the mainstream media who might try and play it straight sort of doesn't hit the point that it's an absurd exercise. And, you know, we saw that. We can talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, certainly with everything going on with Georgia, I think a lot is coming up fairly quickly. All the things going on in New York um, and, you know, certainly with Eastman and stuff. But we have, again, you know, a, a lot to talk about. We've got a pack show today. Uh, we've got the coverage that, you know, a, a filing which was made by Trump lawyer John Eastman in his disbarment proceedings, some stand-up moments from the Dominion defamation suit against Fox News, which was huge, a long, long uh, filing over 100 pages, uh, which we'll talk about coming up. Yeah, and uh, it's um, it's pretty astounding. I've never seen, you know, it's pretty rare that anybody asks for a summary judgment um, in a defamation case. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and what you know, Lawrence Tribe has to say about that and how this could actually be granted. Like this is a, the first time he thinks that a summary judgment could be granted in a defamation case. It's pretty rare, though, because the burden is so high of proof. But there's so much evidence. And we'll talk about uh, that evidence. And we'll also, like I said, discuss that first hearing of the Jim Jordan Weaponization Subcommittee uh, and talk about what we can expect from them in the future, what they're going to investigate, but more specifically, what they're probably not going to investigate that amounts to actual weaponization uh, of the Justice Department, which I've heard you might have a little experience with. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm not quite I'm not quite sure, but we can talk about that. But before that, 
I want to thank our new and returning patrons. Uh, you make this show possible as as a patron. It's a buck an episode, and then you'll get a bonus at the $2 level per episode. You get a free bonus episode with me and Pete over the weekend, um, you know, doing any follow-up news or, or information that might have dropped during the week. Um, and like last week, it was the the Fulton County report, the, the special purpose grand jury report, right? We had... We had seen the ruling from Judge McBurney on Monday, and then over the weekend, we did a bonus. I did a bonus discussing what was actually in the parts of that uh, released report. Uh, but if you want to sign up to become a patron, it's super simple. You just go to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. And a shout out to our new patrons this week. Um, Pete, this is something we do every week. You, When you sign up as a patron, you can call yourself anything you like, kind of like a pub <laughs> trivia team name, right? And we will shout it out on the air. So this week it's David Kittle. Uh, someone signed up as not sure where we go from here. Same. Allison Rempel, Jackson Olson Johnson, Kimberly Joy, Kristen Mendez, just Allison. Excellent. Excellent name. Lee Malatesta, or excuse me, Lee Malatesta, Jujubean 101, and L. Chalfin. Yeah, and uh, I agree. Thanks so much for your support. And uh, with that, let's talk about John Eastman. So John Eastman is the lawyer that helped former President Donald Trump lead a failed legal strategy to overturn the results of the 2020 election of Biden. Now, it was broad. And Allison, as you previously covered the California State Bar disciplinary charges on a previous episode, those included 11 counts of violating a variety of attorney ethics rules in multiple episodes, court cases and other conduct. Now, last week, Eastman filed a 112 page defense of his conduct to the California Bar's Disciplinary Council. Yeah, that's right. And I went over those 11 counts with uh, Andy McCabe on episode 10 of the Jack podcast. And they included failure to support the Constitution and the laws of the United States, misleading the court in those multiple lawsuits he signed on to, moral turpitude, which is just a cool <laughs> phrase, and uh, misrepresentation. And now Eastman has responded to those 11 counts, saying he objects to the bar's counsel's findings on the grounds that they are conclusory, compound, ambiguous, vague, imprecise, overbroad, and intertwined with legal conclusions and argument. Uh, okay. Uh, but the thing that stands out to me uh, the most, especially in the first few pages here, but it's throughout, it's, this is throughout this entire 112-page response, is that Eastman actually denies for lack of personal knowledge, that the Trump campaign received information from numerous credible sources that there was no evidence of widespread fraud. That's still their contention. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd. It's astounding. It doesn't bear any representation with the reality. Now, look, put aside that Barr, Hirschman, Donahue, Ivanka, Cannon, Filmin, Cipollone, all these people, and so many more, told Trump specifically, look, there is no fraud. But now they were reporting that Trump even hired a research firm, a Berkeley research firm, to go out and investigate election fraud. They went out, they did that, they looked across multiple states, and then they came back and they briefed Trump and Meadows and said, hey, look, there wasn't any substantial fraud in December 2020. So even the group that Trump paid to do that, a private group, goes out, looks around, and comes back and adds their voice to this long list of folks saying that there is no factual basis to assert that there's any fraud going on whatsoever. Yeah, and that report never came out. They kept that to themselves, <laughs> right? Because it totally, yeah, it's devastating to my case, basically. Uh, for, quote, liar, liar. 
Um, and, you know, honestly, I'm, this is just speculation, Pete, but what I think happened is that he didn't like those results, so he didn't pay that firm. And then I think that firm came out and <laughs> went and talked to the press about their findings. I don't have any proof of that, but it's, it's a pattern. Um, and Eastman himself, by the way, had to be aware of those findings. He said, look, man, no, it's, this is still an issue. We still don't know if there was election fraud. But he had to be aware, aware of those findings because he wrote an email on December 30th after that briefing from the Berkeley research firm that Trump should not sign his name to the Georgia lawsuit alleging election fraud, um, which included, by the way, specific numbers like 2,486 dead people voted, 6,922, I'm making these numbers up, uh, illegal immigrants voted, uh, et cetera. You know, these ballots were turned over in a suitcase under a desk uh, with the Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss thing, right? Just all of these very specific numbers. And he was about to sign that lawsuit. And Eastman said, hey, that's a bad idea. The president has since become aware that the evidence outlined in the lawsuit is inaccurate. And that email was actually handed over to the January 6th committee pursuant to the crime fraud exception. I mean, Eastman admitted in his own words that he knew that there was no widespread fraud. I don't know if he was in the briefing, but it certainly sounds like he caught wind of it because he tried to get Trump to not sign on to that Georgia lawsuit, which, by the way, Trump did anyhow. He signed on to that lawsuit after receiving that Berkeley firm briefing. And now he's telling now Eastman is telling the California bar that he didn't have any personal knowledge that there wasn't any widespread fraud. Yeah. And that doesn't hold water. I mean, look, you know, the, the, the best things for a prosecutor are those that clearly and unambiguously state what somebody knows and and telling not only did I know that there wasn't fraud or I know there were these concerns, but actually going out and affirmatively telling the president of the United States, don't sign that or don't have the boss sign that. He shouldn't do it. So this isn't some matter of interpretation. This isn't some like, well, I felt there might have been fraud or I didn't think that was an accurate survey. It is somebody counseling their client to say, do not sign this. Because we have, you know, their facts to the contrary and you don't want to go signing it because it might open you up to liability, to criminal, you know, exposure to any number of things. So these are the kind of things that, you know, one, that data is out there. And then the absurd part is the first like 14 or more pages of Eastman's rebuttal, he's sitting there denying that he had any knowledge that the election fraud claims are false. He denies that the vice president doesn't have unilateral power to throw out the electoral votes, even though he said so in multiple emails that were handed over the January 6th committee. So I don't, I don't get it. I mean, there are these things in the public record. The January 6th has put a, the committee has put a spotlight on that they have released to the public that certainly the, the California Bar Disciplinary Proceedings has at their disposal. If they haven't already heard them, and I'm certain many of them have, they're going to be able to go out and find them. And I don't know how he expects to have this filing hold any water whatsoever. Well, it really can't. And I mean, you know, I've, I've read a lot of Eastman filings, whether they be in court, totally misrepresented. Uh, based on the knowledge that we know he did have because of those, you know, dozens of emails that were handed over uh, pursuant to the crime fraud exception to the January 6th committee, which, by the way, the DOJ had well before that whole public court battle went through Judge Carter's courtroom. Uh, the DOJ had all those already, those Chapman University emails. Um, and, and we know that because the DOJ asked the taint team, the DOJ filter team, to prioritize emails between Eastman and Scott Perry, Rep. Scott Perry, because and that I think that is probably what led to this, the seizure of, of Scott Perry's phone, which they're now battling in, in court under seal to because, you know, he doesn't think 
Scott Perry doesn't think that uh, he should be subject to have his phone, uh, the, you know, the contents of his phone search per- pursuant to a second warrant because he's a member of Congress. I don't think that that's going to go anywhere, just like I don't think Pence's defense about whether he should testify under the speech or debate clause is going to go anywhere. Uh, but at least at least Perry is a, a member of the legislature. Um, but now that's the, the basis for his whole defense is that he couldn't have tried to overturn the election. Because the question, he says, the question of whether there was widespread election fraud, he actually says, is still hotly contested. Um, and and that's going to tie into our Fox News Dominion discussion later. There are reasons that, that people may think that election fraud is still hotly contested. And now it's being admitted, though behind closed doors, uh, and, and was as it was at the time, that there was no election fraud. It was absolutely ridiculous, uh, particularly some of the claims like from Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. So, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't think this is going anywhere. I've never seen an Eastman filing go anywhere, much like a Navarro filing or much like a Clark filing. They're all just sort of, no, I didn't. And then, you know, signed my lawyer. Um, and we've seen this defensive law a lot. We've seen this defense from the Trump camp a lot. At what point does the I had no idea you know, my my people were telling me that uh, there was election fraud, uh, my people being Sidney Powell and, and Rudy Giuliani, when everybody else who's credible was saying not. How how at what point does that become does that defense fall apart, so to speak? Well, I think I mean, I think it's a subjective question. I think that's a question in the eyes of or the ears and mind of a potential juror where they think that this excuse that somebody said, I didn't know where that starts to be not credible and where you start to have a belief beyond a reasonable doubt that there's no way they could have thought that. And so certainly, you know, and it's interesting, you mentioned the Dominion lawsuit because, and we'll talk about it some in a little bit, but so many of these things overlap with each other. There are so many things in that Dominion lawsuit that are going to be helpful to Jack Smith and the work that he's doing, because you talk about the people, all these folks within Fox, Hannity and Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, they all knew there was no fraud. They all knew that these claims that there was, you know, some outrageous, you know, misbehavior going on was absolutely false. And yet, you know, one, outrageously, they went out and said it on air anyway. But two, to the point of what Trump should or shouldn't have done, you have all these voices out there saying, no, we knew that was all bullshit. We knew there was an election fraud. We knew there weren't missing votes or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dead people voting or satellites changing votes. You have then people like you, you mentioned that, Eastman specifically saying in emails, don't sign that because we have information to the contrary. So on the one hand, you have just this range of voices, you know, the the folks we talked about earlier, the Attorney General of the United States, on and on and on telling people there isn't fraud here, there isn't evidence of it. And so at some point, you know, for Trump in particular to stand out there and say, well, I had this, not a host of voices, but like the overwhelming chorus, except for the nutty fringe of Rudy and Sidney Powell, who even Fox were calling like nut jobs, that everybody else was saying, this isn't true. And at some point you can't credibly say, yeah, you know, despite all of these people, credible people, attorney, my attorneys telling me this, my attorney general telling me this, I didn't believe it. At some point that, that defense I think falls apart. So, you know, we'll see there. I do think the information that we saw in the Dominion, um, movement for summary judgment, I think is very compelling. And again, I think all of that is going to come together. 
Yeah, it all sort of does meet, you know, at, at some point, much like the, the eight prongs of the conspiracy to overthrow the government sort of meet in the middle at Donald Trump and, and Mark Meadows and Eastman Clark and the like. Um, and, and also, I think we're going to be hearing a lot about a, a case called United States v. Jewel. Um, that case has to do with what's called the ostrich instruction. And that is a jury instruction. It's, this is a well-known thing. This isn't like the first time somebody's ever tried to say, I didn't know. Uh, this, <laughs> this is a well-known attempt, like feeble attempt at a defense. Um, and, and so the ostrich instruction is a jury instruction that the requirement of knowledge to establish mens rea or a guilty mind is satisfied by deliberate ignorance and deliberate avoidance of knowledge. And so that whole concept arose from the case U.S. v. Jewel. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot about it uh, in, in, you know, briefings and replies to whatever the defense may be. And, and not only in, in the January 6th case, but probably in the documents case as well. We're just going to see it because this happened. Did, did it not um, when Mueller investigated the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And some of it, I mean, look, there, there are a couple of parallels and some dissimilarities as well. I mean, the fact of the matter was we had a huge issue, you know, when I was there with Mueller and then after I had left that trying to demonstrate that state of mind of knowing of people knowing that what they were doing was wrong, that they were breaking the law was really hard in the context. I mean, it was that the stupidity defense, right? But for Trump and Don Jr. and everybody else that I was too dumb to understand what the law was and therefore to have the intent to break it, I couldn't have done it because I really didn't know it was wrong to begin with. So, you know, that was a challenge, but there is a huge dissimilarity in the context of that Trump Tower meeting where you had a few participants, different recollections versus the things we're looking at now with the sprawling enterprise to overturn the vote for Biden, to interrupt the transfer of power to Biden. We have just multiple peoples making records, whether they're sending text messages, they're making statements to each other, they're sending emails to each other, they're testifying for the January 6th committee. This isn't something where you have a one room and you're trying to see what Jared remembers and what Bannon remembers and what Don Jr. and you know Goldstone and Veselnitskaya and they've all got their motives. You've got just a huge number of people who are documenting what they're saying. So I think that kind of where it gets hard to pin down Trump historically on like his knowledge and intent to break a law, I think that starts getting harder in the context of everything that was going on around January 6th. At least I hope so. We'll see. But, you know, it's at this point too, the other thing is like he has become so immersed in what the right thing and the wrong thing is to do at this point in the days and months leading up to January 6th after the vote, it isn't something that just he fell into, you know, it's a meeting. Who's this person coming from Russia? I don't know what's going on. They want to talk about dirt on Hillary, maybe. And they start talking about child adoption. This is something that every, he and everybody around him were talking about every day, all day, over weeks, over more than a month. So it's a little harder to spin. Oh, hey, I didn't know. I didn't have any idea. Yeah, I think if uh, the people who took place or took part in that uh, Trump Tower meeting had been told relentlessly via email and by research firms and by lawyers that what they were doing was illegal and there was a bunch of a pile of evidence showing that, I think that the, we might have had a different outcome in that particular part of the Mueller probe. So uh, I, I personally think that uh, Eastman is on his way to uh, disbarment here in California. And just a warning, disbarment takes a long time. It's still going on with Rudy. 
uh, over in New York. And then he's, he's currently also suspended in D.C. But that's going to be a while. These things take a while. So just uh, buckle up. You and I will cover it as it happens. Yeah. And if they can't, if the if the bar process, if the sort of revocation of bar membership doesn't work in this instance, I mean, I, the, the legal community needs to go back to ground zero and tear everything down and rebuild it. Because <laughs> if you objectively look at the behavior just of those two, just take Rudy Giuliani, just take John Eastman. I mean, add Sidney Powell if you want to add her in there. If the legal community cannot hold itself accountable in the conduct of those two people, then we're lost. Then, then I think the profession needs to start over. But I agree with you. I think both of them will be sanctioned, will lose um, their license. But, you know, like you said, it's not going to happen fast. That's probably a good thing. We don't want, you know, a, a kangaroo court sort of bouncing people out and want everybody to have that due process, even in the sort of context of bar membership. But I think we'll end up there. It may, it, I, I'm sure it will not be as soon as any any listener wants. Yeah, that's very true. All right, thanks. We're going to be right back um, with the Cool Kids version of the Twitter files, the Fox files. So stick around. Welcome back. Allison, this week we got to see some of the evidence Dominion has against Fox News in a brief in support of Dominion's motion for summary judgment. Usually, plaintiffs in defamation cases don't ask for summary judgment because of the heavy burden, and Dominion themselves acknowledge that in their brief, and I've got an extended quote here. So, normally, plaintiffs in defamation cases do not move for summary judgment of liability, let alone file a 40,000-word opening brief. Here, however, Dominion details some of the extensive record evidence demonstrating Fox's liability on every point covering this months-long period involving four categories of lies in 20 accused statements across six different shows with the active involvement of numerous Fox executives. Dominion understands and embraces the heavy burden of plaintiffs moving for summary judgment on liability in defamation cases. Here, however, the facts demonstrate why no reasonable juror could find in Fox's favor on each element of Dominion's defamation claim. And so that's a long quote lifted directly from their filing. But, you know, I it was astounding to me. And, we'll, you know, we've got some some particular quotes we're, we're going to talk about. But 40,000 pages is our words. Rather, that's a long brief. That isn't, you know, it was over 100, 110, 113 or 14 pages. I mean, that's a, it's not a 20 page briefing. This is something and it wasn't a briefing that was full of sort of, you know, extended discussion of theory or repetition. It was meaty. You dive into it and they just start going through example of an example, an example of all these different individuals and statements they were making just from the producer level to the on-air personality level to their facts checkers to senior Fox executives. And they all knew it was nonsense. But again, if if you haven't read it, I'd recommend you read it. But we'll, we'll get into you know some of the more uh, amusing or illuminating uh, quotes that they they put into that brief. Yeah, and that's how it starts off. It it's a cold open, right? Like just quote, 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 quote. Some are redacted, as a matter of fact. And and I'm going to ask you in a second why. Um, it, maybe they're part of a different case or. Uh, some ongoing criminal investigation or, or something to that effect. But uh, the, there's some of these quotes are redacted. So maybe these aren't even the most explosive ones that we see. But after they line up all those quotes, the first sentence 
of their brief written as written by the lawyers that isn't a quote from a Fox News anchor or executive is Fox New, period. I think that's your hashtag right there, right? Um, Instead of Fox News, it's Fox New. And um, let's just go over some of my, uh, this is a standout (laughs) quotes. I almost said some of my favorite, but some of the standout quotes here, because this is just sort of, I mean, it feels, I, I have to imagine, very vindicating to a lot of people who have been, you know, particularly listeners who are trying to talk to their families who watch Fox News or, or family members who might uh, have been, you know, sort of backing these election fraud lies or parroting what Fox News is saying. It has to feel like, oh, uh, like all of the imposter syndrome and gaslighting has just melted away. And you, you're like, yes, I look, I this is what I told you was happening. Um, and and first of all, the, you know, and they note this isn't just from Fox News executives. This is from some of their hosts uh, on their six biggest shows. Tucker Carlson told his producer Alex Pfeiffer on November sixteenth, twenty twenty. By the way, that's just about a week after Joe Biden was declared the victor of the twenty twenty election. Uh, just point blank, Sidney Powell is lying. That's one from Tucker Carlson. And then another Tucker uh, Sidney Powell quote is Laura Ingram to Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. They have these super fun uh, text message groups that I'm really glad I'm not a part of. Um, <laughs> saying this is Laura, Laura Ingram saying Sidney Powell's a bit nuts. Sorry, but she is. And that was uh, the day before Tucker Carlson said Sidney Powell is lying. So we have this, the, you know, these obvious, we all sort of noticed when Sidney Powell was sort of nudged off of the Fox News network. Yeah, and the thing is that two things strike me. One is that, you know, to your point of, of gaslighting, there is nobody out there in the sort of Fox Nation audience who can read this filing and not feel an extraordinary sense of betrayal. I mean, it's clear Fox News was not providing news. They were providing opinion, they were providing entertainment, and then they were providing falsehoods. And the the everybody was in on the joke, except for maybe Lou Dobbs and, and Judge Janine, but all the, the Tucker and Hannity and, and Laura Ingram, they all knew. And they're playing their audience for suckers. And day in, day out, every night they'd get up there and just lie to them. So I don't know how you sit down and again, you know, does it confirm what we all suspected? Yes. But is it the kind of thing where if you're, you know, denial is a hell of a powerful emotion. And if you are part of the, you know, the country, part of the listening audience who tuned in to Fox every night, I don't know how you can sit there and go through this and not be extraordinarily angry and, and have a, an extraordinary feeling of betrayal because it's clear. And again, you know, it, it wasn't Alice. It wasn't just the. It wasn't just the people on air. You've got like there's another quote where Fox News President Jay Wallace, the president of Fox News, is quoted saying, "Quote: The North Koreans do a more nuanced show than Lou Dobbs." <laughs> and then Rupert Murdoch. He's he texts after watching Rudy the press conference with Sidney Powell where he's got his little hair dyed dripping down his face. He then texts really crazy stuff and damaging. And continuing, you know, these people should be watched if skeptically. Trump will concede eventually, and we should concentrate on Georgia helping any way we can. We don't want to antagonize Trump further, but Giuliani taken with a large grain of salt, everything is at stake here. Hmm. I, I just I don't know how who in America can read that and say I I, I <laughs> come up with I, I just I don't but nevertheless it will people will find a way to ignore it or gloss over it but I, it just keeps going 
Yeah. And I haven't heard too much uh, from that camp, at least on the social media. They've sort of switched over to, you know, Biden's in Ukraine and not Ohio or why isn't he at the border or uh, fentanyl or, you know, whatever the, you know, their pivot talking point is uh, for the day. Uh, But, you know, I want to get back to those redacted bits because, you know, it occurred to me that these um, some of these text messages between the hosts and the Fox, but the people at Fox News might help some of the defendants who attacked the Capitol the day of January 6th. And I'm wondering if they if maybe some of those quotes aren't being used in some of those cases, because a lot of these folks who attacked the Capitol are arguing, hey, I got into Fox News. I started listening to Fox News and Newsmax and OAN. And uh, and uh, I believed that the election had been stolen. And and so I really think not that, uh, you know, I want to help the defendants who attacked the Capitol at all. Uh, but I think that these could go a long way to maybe they're, you know, reducing their sentences or, or some sort of a defense like they lied to me. I was here because I believed those Fox lies of election fraud. And now I have to go to jail, uh, you know, for for a year or three years or seven years or however long. And so I'm I'm kind of wondering if like of what you know of investigations and redactions, if that could be why some of these things are redacted or if this has come out too late for some of these defendants, might we see some of these defendants saying, hey, I need a new trial because Fox News lied to me. I mean, I think this has a massive impact on some of those investigations. Yeah. So to your question about the redactions, I'm not sure what the reason is. I mean, they're typically in discovery, there will be something subject to a protective order where before you give it out that, you know, unless both parties, whoever is claiming that, um, you know, the protection has to waive it before it's in a public document. Now, there's something clearly what we're seeing is the redacted version. What the court sees is everything. The judge who is reading this sees everything behind those redactions. So there is nothing there that the judge is not able to see. It could be that it's things having to do with PII, personal identifiable information, you know, somebody talking their true uh, email account, or maybe they're talking about a family member or things that are is redacted for privacy reasons. But it's it and it could be things that are related to, you know, potentially criminal activity or other areas. So it's really hard to sit and speculate and say, okay, why are particular things in here? um, Not visible to us. And that's something again, the important thing at the end of the day is that the court gets to see it. So all of the information in there and some of it, you know, to your point, it shows up redacted early on. So if you're trying to make an impact, if you're Dominion saying, look at all the damning stuff we have and almost immediately stuff is redacted, tells me there's some really compelling stuff there behind those redactions. But I think you're absolutely right about how people might use this as their defense. And we saw it, you know, in the Proud Boy trial just recently, they're attempting to subpoena Trump for his testimony. And I think it's for the same sort of purpose to say, hey, look, Donald Trump told us the election was stolen. Donald Trump was the commander in chief. Donald Trump was the president, had access to all this information. So all we were doing were responding to his cry for help, you know, to stand back and stand by. And I think it is not an unreasonable argument. Now I'm not talking about Enrique Tario and Rhodes and all these people at senior levels who probably had a really, you know, much like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson knew what was BS and knew what was the truth. But if you're some poor guy who hopped on a bus from the middle of America, because one night you're listening to Sean Hannity saying it's stolen. The next night you're listening to a quote from Donald Trump saying it's, you know, be there, it's going to be wild. It is, in my mind, a reasonable defense for some poor schmuckatelli in the middle of the heartland of America 
who said, hey, I heard all these things. Fox News is supposed to be a major network. I heard the president say this. He's the president of the United States. And so I believe them mm-hmm. because they're supposed to be trusted people. And therefore, my personal culpability should be reduced. And I, it, that's not unfortunate. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, I think that's a reasonable argument to make. And we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Um, you know, and certainly I don't Proud Boy trial has been going on for, for weeks now. And if they get into some litigation um, over over Trump and whether or not he goes, I mean, that thing could I, I don't know what happens, but it could be going on for a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the judge is going to allow a subpoena for for Donald Trump. But um, I mean, a, a lot of these arguments have already been made. Right. And you know, I think it was George Conway who brought up a really good point saying, look, even if even if you thought the election was stolen, the correct remedy isn't to overthrow the government by force. Uh, and for example, he uses the best example, the OJ, you know, the, when OJ actually went to jail, uh, he, he went to jail because he said that some collector in Vegas had stolen his items and he went and robbed them back. And and they said and he's like, but they were my things. And he's like, that's totally irrelevant. If if the if those were your things, if you if the, your memorabilia were stolen, just like it's totally irrelevant if your election was stolen. The proper remedy isn't to overthrow the government by force or disrupt the one six electoral count in violation of fifteen twelve C two, et cetera. So the, this has been made before, and so I think anybody worried if Trump is going to use this information to say, well, Fox News was telling me that there was election fraud. He was the one driving the claims of election fraud, and I think that that's evident in some of these uh, other quotes. So I don't think that'll fly either, along with the the OJ thing. Um, we then get into, like, like, let's see, where were we? Sean Hannity uh, is quoted as saying Sidney Powell's election fraud narrative. Um, he said, I did not believe it for one second. Uh, and then um, there's another quote from Jerry Andrews, who's actually the producer of Judge Janine Pirro's show, who said Janine is just as nuts. Now, we don't know as nuts as whom. Uh, we just know he said that the of the host of the show he produces that she is just as nuts as somebody. Maybe maybe it was Sidney Powell. Maybe it was Rudy Giuliani. And um, then then Fox executive, we get into one of the executives here, Gary Schreier, said about, uh, is her name Maria Bartiromo? Yeah. Yep. Uh, said, quote, the problem is she has GOP conspiracy theorists in her ear and they use her for their message sometimes. That's what he said about that. So that is uh, another executive talking. And then we get a tie in to the Dominion uh, stuff specifically. Yeah, is, uh, so what? Yeah. You, this is a good one. You get it. You get it. You oh, no, it. it's, it's the ba- I mean, it's fabulous in terms of if you're trying to prove your case, if you're Dominion. So this is from Tommy Firth who's Laura Ingram's producer. And he says, this Dominion shit is going to give me a fucking aneurysm. (laughs) As many times as I've told Laura it's BS, she sees shit posters and Trump tweeting about it. And so you you can't, I mean, if you're Dominion, it's all right. (laughs) We know it's, you have a producer saying it's bullshit, knowing it's bullshit, telling her, I don't know, quote unquote, how many times, as many times as I've told her it's bullshit, she goes ahead and does it anyway. So if you're trying to prove, you know, because Dominion is, you have to hit for defamation because they're a public figure. It's it's a higher standard to prove that, you know, it has to be done with like, you know, knowledge that you're going to cause harm. This is the sort of quote that, again, if you have a, uh, 
you know, th this motion for summary judgment, these are the kind of statements that might cause a judge to say, well, <laughs> you know, that's pretty unambiguous and you can't interpret that statement any other way. But, you know, again, for Dominion, these were tremendously fruitful interviews. I don't, I'm curious, you know, I know they're, they're moving for that. I don't know if a judge at the end of the day may want the kind of imprimatur of a juror, even if he thinks, you know what, they've got this you know, they, they, they may be close to hitting the standard of summary judgment, whether or not that judge might have a pause and think, but a jury is going to have the same thing. And if we're going to hit some award that's in the hundreds of millions or more, having a jury conclude that is a stronger basis than, you know, just me saying it is so, even though it clearly is so, you know, we'll see if it goes to trial or not. But these are, again, from a criminal perspective, just from a trial meeting the elements of, you know, this, the, the civil case, these are extraordinarily damning statements. And I just, you know, if you're Dominion, I, I think you're in really good shape. I, it is a stunning, stunning filing. It, it really is. And yeah, if I were a judge, I would probably want a jury to go through this too. Um, just, just so everything kind of holds up on appeal a little bit better. And cause there will be appeals. Um, of course, Fox's defense here is, <laughs> you know, well, first of all, they came out and said, look, you're going to hear a lot of things, but don't worry. We're still awesome. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but they are saying dominion quote has mischaracterized the record cherry picked quotes stripped of key context i'm not sure how janine is just as nuts is could be taken out of context um <laughs> it's, it's yeah hard hard to say it's like the north koreans do a more nuanced show they didn't say about you know about kim jong-un's new jam factory i mean what what, what more context do you need I, I, it doesn't come on come yeah on. in fact that would be a fun exercise to to try to you know like reverse engineer some context that would make these quotes bearable uh <laughs> that would be a fun exercise for i don't know an improv group are you listening second city are you listening i think that would be great um also they say they've spilled considerable ink on facts that are irrelevant and under black letter principles of defamation law they've also argued um they don't spend too much time pushing back on these really uh damning quotes that have come to light just a little bit most of their pushback is it's no way it's worth 1.6 billion because dominion they say is doing fine they still make 100 million dollars a year and uh, we got an outside firm to check and dominion's only worth about 80 million so 1.6 billion is too high uh, of an award so that's one thing that they'll another thing they'll be fighting uh, and then of course we know the standard is actual malice which dominion says it has met because the network either knew the statements it aired were false or recklessly disregarded their accuracy. I haven't seen uh, an actual malice defense yet from Fox. I'm assuming it's coming. It'll be interesting, much like the Eastman defense for his, his bar counts. Uh, I don't know how you defend against that, um, because at like Lawrence Tribe said, as I said at the top of the show, if any defamation suit could ever be decided on summary judgment, this is the one. But I, I'm with you. I don't think it necessarily will. Uh, and this is scheduled to go to trial on April 17th. Yeah, I, I, I think we are going to see trial. I think I don't know that I think that frankly, the Fox will be found guilty. I mean, the actual malice standard you can show just in those quotes we read, they either knew statements saying we know this is false 
and or in terms of reckless disregard that they went ahead knowing it was false and published it anyway. There, there are other quotes where, you know, Tucker is saying that some poor Fox reporter actually fact checked something and did it in a way that undercut something that Trump was trying to advance and saying, hey, can't we fire this person? So the people that existed within Fox that were tired trying to tell the truth had the just the the rancor of these anchors didn't mean to make that rhyme <laughs> coming down on them trying to get them to either be fired and or change their behavior so i think it's really i don't again if you get to the point of trying to say this wasn't actual malice i don't know how you get there if you're fox i mean we'll see but and i think what people don't understand is like think about as we're all sitting there on election eve waiting for results to come in and as it gets late in the night you start waiting and they're talking about individual counties the fact of the matter is each one of those individual counties goes out and they buy. Sometimes the state tells them who they have to buy or not. Sometimes they get their own. They have to buy these voting systems. And so each and every county in each and every one of the 50 states in the United States of America buys and maintains and upgrades voting machines. And despite how diverse that sort of process is, at the end of the day, they're not a lot. I mean, there are three or four voting companies that, you know, the Smartmatic, ESNS, I think, is one in Dominion, maybe one other, but it isn't a big group of people who provide this. So when you think and you say, oh, that's a lot of money, well, the reality is when it comes to voting systems, there's a lot of money in it. And that's just the US. Like every other nation around the world frequently also goes in and buys it. And if you're Dominion and you're trying to sell to an audience in Western Europe or Sub Saharan Africa or wherever the case may be, that, hey, buy our system. And somebody out there Googles it and sees all the stuff that Fox was saying, that has an impact on your bottom line. So I, you know, I don't think it is absurd to be claiming more than a billion dollars of damages. No, I don't either. And, you know, there's also punitive damages. Uh, and, and so, I mean, Alex Jones is up to, I think, $1.4 or $1.6 billion in damages for the defamation against the Sandy Hook families. So I, I don't think it's unheard of either, particularly in future revenues and punitive damage, everything all in, you know, into one big uh, bundle. But we'll, we'll, we'll see how it, how it rolls out, provided they don't get a summary judgment, which, like I said, I don't think they will. We'll see this uh, start on April 17th, and I will be watching if it is public. I'll have to check on that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back to talk about our favorite thing, Pete. Uh, what I call the WTF committee, the uh, the weaponization of the federal government, the WTF government committee um, hosted by Jim Jordan. And I say hosted because it's a show. <laughs> it's not a, an actual legitimate committee in my personal, humble opinion. So we're going to talk about that right after the break. Stick around. Everybody, welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. The House's new subcommittee, dedicated to probing the so-called weaponization of the federal government, held its first hearing February 9th. And Pete, it feels to me like another excuse to get at information in the Trump investigations while providing a new forum to relitigate Russian disinformation in 2016. We both watched parts of this hearing. What were your top line thoughts besides the WTF text messages you sent me? <laughs> that it was absolutely an abysmal failure for the Republicans. I mean, I think it is the result of what you're seeing is a Republican narrative, a far right Republican narrative that has sort of grown in the QAnon conspiracy theories and amongst the Maria Barter Romos and the Lou Dobbs. That is like, you know, kids pretending to be wizards in the basement. And they decide that they have special magical powers 
And they decide on Friday night to go out to a bar at 11.30. They get in the fight and they get their butt kicked because guess what? There are no magical make-believe spells. And, you know, that, that isn't going to work when this nonsense make-believe hits the real reality of the truth. And, you know, some of it, two things. Like, one, you know, this I, I don't want to call it the weaponization committee because I think that's just playing into, you know, what they're trying to falsely portray. But there are actually two committees. You've got the weaponization committee, which Jim Jordan has, but then there's also, you know, the House Oversight Committee and and uh, Comer's got that. And so you have two different committees that are sort of in parallel advancing on the one hand, you know, they've got all these Twitter executives up there talking about how the government tried to influence their handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story. And that was immediately shot down. And then you've got this whole other thing where you've got Ron Johnson, and Chuck Grassley and Tulsi Gabbard, and they sound either like, you know, you're your crazy uncle that every Thanksgiving you get stuck with while the turkey's still cooking and you can't <laughs> get away from him. And he's complaining about his sciatica for the umpteenth dozen time. And he's going on and on and on and complaining about it. And you just can't escape. And it's like, I can't help but listening to Grassley, you know, and Tulsi's complaining about why she lost the, you know, the nomination in 2016. These folks are sort of repeating this mantra of this tired old nonsense. And then you've got really good and effective, smart Democrats that the Democrats have put on the panel. You've got Jamie Raskin testifying in one case. He's on the committee in another. You have newcomers like Dan Goldman who are just tearing apart Republican witnesses. And to the point of, you know, when you have all these people who emerge from their parents' basement, sit down under oath and want to pretend they're wizards with magical spells, when you get a smart person who's grounded in reality, who also has training as an attorney with questioning witnesses, they were just shredded. So, you know, I'm curious, Trey Gowdy could pull off years of Benghazi hearings targeting Hillary Clinton. I don't know that these committees are going to have the same success sort of pushing this line of BS. But I'm curious what you what you think about where they go with this for another year and a half. Well, I think it's going to just they're just going to be hammering home on all the things, all their, you know, their five talking points that have all been debunked. Right. And and we saw quite a bit of that happen in this first hearing. And I, in fact, Jamie Raskin, it had a really incredible st- opening statement. Uh, well, not opening, but, you know, a statement when it was his turn. And he said, millions of Americans already fear that weaponization is the right name for this special subcommittee, not because weaponization of the government is its target, but because weaponization of the government is its purpose. And I fully 100% support that. He brought up Durham and Barr, for example, and the weaponization there and that how the only crime after spending millions of dollars traipsing around the world that they found was one that Trump committed and they kept it a secret and it just went away mysteriously. And that needs to be looked at, I think. And I know the Senate Judiciary has said that they are going to look into that. And you and I will talk about that when that starts happening. Uh, He brought up Michael Cohen, who was thrown into solitary confinement for 16 days, uh, taken out of home arrest uh, because he wanted to publish his book. And and he's like, if that's not weaponization, are we going to talk about that? Because that seems like a really great topic for this committee. I don't think they're going to talk about anything like that. But I'm really glad there are some Democrats on that committee who can push back on a lot of this stuff. Um, there was a really uh, Dan Goldman is on this committee who who is is great. There was an exchange uh, that was tense between him uh, and Jordan because Goldman was pressing Jim Jordan on Jordan's claim that Republican staffers have spoken with dozens of FBI whistleblowers. Uh, but Goldman repeatedly pressed Jordan for those transcripts, notes, testimony from those whistleblowers, anything, while other Democratic members jumped in asking for the whistleblowers' names. I'm not cool with that, but 
I don't think they exist. Jordan said the subcommittee would schedule each of the whistleblowers for depositions, which Democrats could attend, and said he would speak uh, about how we handle information from those prior conversations with whistleblowers and his staff. The only member of the FBI they had on there, I think what served in the Reagan administration, <laughs> I, a lo- <laughs> long time ago. Um, but I think the most hypocritical thing of all is Jim Jordan issuing subpoenas to anyone. I mean, he, yeah, he defied he, a subpoena. Exactly. I mean, this is somebody who defied a subpoena and why, you know, if he is clearly demonstrated just a year ago, maybe not even that, that he has no, he does not see the power in a congressional subpoena to compel him to do anything. Why should he turn around and be issuing any subpoenas of his own, let alone, you know, why could not anybody receiving one of these say, hey, look, well, I'm just going to say to you what you said when you received one of these last year. And that's, I don't think this is worth the ink that's printed on it. So it's a, it is clearly hypocrisy. I think Raskin is exactly right. But you, this is the prime example of behavior that Trump and his, you know, with the enablers in Congress, use the government to go after people just doing their job or trying to do their job. And now they've taken the action that occurred and turned it into accusations against the other side. And, you know, whether people see through that, I don't know. I mean, the Senate, as you mentioned, the Senate is, the Senate Judiciary Committee has said they're going to look at it. They're a much more sober body and much more credible, I think. But, you know, if anything, all this does, many, you know, your listeners, our listeners, do follow this, do get some explanation, do have an understanding of what's going on. But unfortunately, I think a large number in the American public maybe pick up on an article or a news item once or twice in the span of a few months. And all this does is serve to muddy up the entire sort of environment. And they can't tell, well, you know, everybody's complaining about weaponization. It's not clear if the Democrats did it, the Republicans did it. I don't, it seems convoluted. I don't understand. It seems like a bunch of nonsense. And so by creating this, you know, sort of BS narrative in Congress, they are serving to, you know, sort of hide the real abuses that did take place you know, during the four years of the Trump presidency. And I think that's an unfortunate or a deliberate, probably on the part of the, some Republicans, a deliberate attempt to sort of muddy that up so that the actual truth is not so apparent. Yeah. And I, I think we saw in the 2020 midterm elections that uh, voters, um, those likely to vote, uh, aren't having any of this election fraud BS or don't care about Hunter Biden's laptop or you know, anything that uh, the Oversight Committee or the Jim Jordan subcommittee want to investigate. So I actually think it does harm to the Republican Party for them to continue to go down this path, maybe not in the minds of, you know, average Joe American, but in the minds of those who are likely to vote. Uh, Everyone seemed pretty fed up with it. Yeah, I think that's right. And the thing that also that stood out is that, you know, much like it was the I remember when Ron Johnson went on Chuck Todd on Meet the Press probably three or four weeks ago. And Chuck Todd really took some sharp questioning to him and wouldn't relent when Johnson didn't give him an answer. And I think you saw the same thing, that exchange, which struck me when I was watching Goldman going back and forth with Jordan about getting the list. And Jordan tried to brush him off with some non-responsive answer and said, oh, well, we interviewed the first whistleblower yesterday. You didn't attend. He's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about your interview. I'm talking about all these other people. And then Jordan gives a non-responsive answer. Every time these folks, they're accustomed to going on and talking to Maria Bartiromo or Lou Dobbs or Sean Hannity. 
And these softball interviews aren't real life. And so when they run into somebody who won't buy into their non-responsive answers, who keep going after them, th their reality, their false reality just starts disintegrating. And that's all, you know, I thought watching Jordan respond, I thought that, you know, this, this, this agent who, he retired in 1999. He entered the bureau in 1966, mm. like two years after the, the horrible, you know, letters that the bureau sent to, to Dr. King telling him he should commit suicide. I mean, to, to have somebody that far removed from the FBI try and talk about the FBI's behavior today, it was apparent that when faced with reality, when faced with intelligent questioners who have facts on their side, this facade just disintegrated. And so it was interesting to watch. I think the Republicans have to understand it didn't go well for them on either of the, you know, the first hearings on either of those two committees. And I think they're gonna, you're going to see a much more controlled environment, but I, you can't control what congressmen are going to ask. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in the future. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm glad that uh, folks like Rask, Raskin and and Goldman are there um, to sort of bring everybody back to reality. All right, well, thank you so much. Be this is our our first episode together of Clean Up Inaugural episode. I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you um, uh, as part of this show, and I know the listeners are too. So thank you so very much for for committing your time to it, and um, we'll be back this weekend for a, a quick update. Uh, if, if anything happens this week, I think it, I think something might happen this week. I know that we're on we're on imminent indictment watch from Fonnie Willis down there in in uh, in Fulton County, and I know I came out and said, look, I think imminent in government speak means like three weeks. Uh, this we're we're at we're at four weeks now, so <laughs> we're we're even past my conservative timeline for what imminence means, and we might get we might hear something this week from her. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I think so, too, because remember, she went in and she asked the judge to keep that sealed because she said that there was imminent action coming. And, you know, to your point, that was several weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. So she's not, I, you know, I take her at her at her word. But, too, you're not going to go in and tell the judge that. And then, you know, a month and a half, two months later, still nothing's coming. So I think I agree with you. It may be this week, but certainly, you know, soon, soon being, I think, by mid-March, we're going to see something coming out of Georgia. Ah, beware the Ides of March. All right. Well, thank you very much. We're going to be back next week. Uh, and again, that bonus episode for our $2 patrons. If you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E, 45-P-O-D. Uh, it's been wonderful. I'm very happy to have you here. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. And we'll see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>